If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we will not be covering merely verses 6 to 10, but actually all of verses 6 to 23, uh, the rest of the chapter. I was struggling this week. I was struggling with the text. I was changing my mind on starting and stopping and restarting and uh, changing my mind on how much of the text to take, uh, ultimately deciding that I needed to have this all together because uh, it all just fit together. Uh, and so obviously with this uh, larger text, we won't be covering every single detail with a fine tooth comb, but uh, we'll try to get the thrust of the, the text uh, as a whole. And just now, even as you have your Bibles, if uh, you look down at, at the text in Colossians 2, I just want to kind of highlight the structure even before we read it. Um, we, we see a, a few imperatives in the text in verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then in verse 16, there's another imperative. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in these issues. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on these various things. And so you have these imperatives, these commands uh, that we have freedom in Christ and we are to preserve and guard that freedom. And all of that is being undergirded by the truths set forth in verses 9 to 15 that, that Christ or Paul sets Christ forward as uh, the foundation of all true faith and as the fullness. Uh, so just to give you a little roadmap, even as we read the text, so you know how to uh, follow the logic of Paul. So, we'll, But we'll pick up in verse 6 just to get context, and then we'll read through the chapter. So let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Colossians 2, chapter 6 and following. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the full, whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in, the in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us so that we might know you. And most of all, we thank you for Christ, uh, who is the fullness uh, and who has, we've been filled in him. We've been given new life in him. Uh, We have all that we need in him. And so help us to treasure Christ uh, as our fullness, Lord, and to rightly uh, identify and reject all other forms of pseudo-spirituality and religion which would distract us from Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think the thrust of this whole passage is that Christ is the sum and substance of true religion and spirituality. Therefore, if you have Christ, you have true religion. And if you don't have Christ, you can have lots of stuff. You can have fancy prayers, you can have rigorous discipline, you can have fancy formulations of theological uh, truth, you can have impressive traditions, but at the end of the day, you still have nothing. Because Christ himself is the sum and substance of true religion and spirituality. And it ought not surprise us to hear that the person of Christ is at the center of Christianity and that if you remove Christ, then you have no true Christianity. And while that ought not surprise us, it is surprisingly common for Christ not to be at the center of many Christian traditions. That's true today and it was true in Paul's day as well, as we see in this text. If Satan cannot get Christians to outright reject Christ, the next best thing is to distract them from Christ. The enemy of your soul would have you absorbed in, consumed with, or as Paul says, taken captive by anything other than Christ himself. And typically, when we think about things that distract us from Christ, we think about the desires of the world and the pleasures of sin. And that's one real Reality, But sometimes the thing that leads us away from Christ is not the world, but religion. It's not the pleasures of sin, but it's the pride of righteousness. And that is the issue that Paul is combating here in Colossians 2. So how do we evaluate the value and legitimacy of the various seemingly endless ideas that we encounter within and outside of Christianity. The answer that is given here is that we measure them against the plumb line of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is himself the sum and substance of all true religion and spirituality. Moreover, how do we fortify our soul 
against the solicitations of a kind of pseudo-spirituality and systems of false religion. And the answer we see is that we become more aware and experientially acquainted with the riches and the fullness that we have in Christ so that we rightly identify these other things, as Paul says, as empty deceit. So we've got a lot going on there. Uh, And if that's just too much to to hold together in your head, I'm just going to use two words to kind of summarize the whole text. Uh, And these two words are freedom and fullness. We have freedom in Christ and we find our fullness in Christ. Notice in verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul frames the whole discussion in terms of freedom and captivity. The default position of the Christian is one of freedom. And he says, see to it, be careful, be on guard against someone who would take you captive, who would undermine the freedom that you have in Christ. And again, typically, we, we first think about sin and that it's uh, sin that brings us into bondage and captivity. And that's true, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit. There are people who are going to peddle philosophies, ideas, and methodologies that might sound good, they might sound appealing, they might even sound spiritual, but at the end of the day, they are empty deceit. Paul has in mind things that don't seem diametrically opposed to Christianity. It seems compatible with being a religious and good person. It seems compatible with being spiritual. But at the end of the day, it's something that robs you of the freedom that you have in Christ. What characterizes these things? Paul says that they are according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, which for reasons I won't go into, I don't know why the ESV translated this as elemental spirits, uh, but I think that it is a reference to the ceremonial laws, uh, which we see in verse 20 of chapter 2, and then also Galatians 3.8, where this same word is used. It's one word for elementary Uh, spirits or elementary principles. Um, But whatever it means, uh, the ultimate and defining feature of these philosophies and these empty deceits which ensnare professing Christians is not merely that they are according to human tradition or according to the elementary principles or spirits of the world, but most significantly, they are not according to Christ. Notice that according to Paul, the person and work of Christ is the plumb line by which all ideologies, philosophies, and methodologies are to be measured. If it in any way distorts, distracts, compromises, minimizes the supremacy and the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it is an empty deceit. And not only is it false, 
but it's a ploy of Satan that will ultimately rob you of your freedom that was bought by Christ and bring you into captivity. Now, that's a big assertion that Paul is making, that all and any religious thought and approach to spirituality that is not centered upon the person of Christ is not only wrong, but it's enslaving. That's the primary assertion that Paul is making in the passage. And then Paul's going to unpack that. He's going to defend it in verses 9 to 15. And this is really the foundation of the, the whole passage that upholds those imperatives we looked at in verse 8 and 16 and 18. So why is it that every approach to spirituality is bankrupt and empty that is not according to Christ? Verse 9, this is why. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And to appreciate the thrust of this passage, I would have to, have to remind you of the, that big phrase, incipient Gnosticism that I talked about a month ago. Uh, emerging, incipient Gnosticism, this melding of Greek philosophy and Christian foundations. And one of the key phrases in Gnosticism was this word fullness, or in Greek, the pleroma. And it was more than just a word meaning full. It became a theological concept for them. And just like the, the Judaizers, uh, these people who believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah, but also that you had to keep Jewish law. The Gnostics had Christ plus special knowledge and spiritual disciplines, which we see later on in this passage. And the whole idea was that you could get to this higher level of Christianity or this higher level of existence. You could arrive, you could experience the pleroma, the fullness if you just do X, Y, and Z on top of believing in Christ. And so Paul is saying, no, no, no. The, the fullness is not found in spiritual disciplines. It's not found in eating kosher. It's not found in some mystical encounter. The fullness of deity is found in Jesus. There is no truth more foundational. There is no reality more lofty. The fullness is found in Christ. And that's why he is the plumb line by which everything else is measured. And this is where it gets really crazy. Because Paul says not only is the fullness, of fullness found in Christ, that is the place where the fullness of deity and true humanity are brought into perfect union, but Paul says, you have been filled in him. You have already been, as Peter calls, it made a partaker of the divine nature 
through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. The eternal, infinite, almighty God dwells in you as a believer in Jesus. And you have that in him. So you don't need to look somewhere else for something higher or something better or something more spiritual because you have been filled in him in whom the fullness dwells. And that's not all. Paul continues in verses 11 to 15, enumerating all the ways in which our fullness is found in Christ. Not only were you filled in him, verse 11, but you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You were buried with him in baptism, verse 12, raised with him, made alive together with him. Verse 13, you were forgiven in him. Verse 15, you're triumphant in him. And perhaps the only one of those that isn't intuitive to us is that we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And so while the Judaizers were saying, yes, Christ plus circumcision, observing Jewish law, uh, Paul is saying, why would you cling to the sign of circumcision when you already have the thing signified by it? It, it, It's a shadow, but now you have the substance in Christ. In, In short, you have something better than physical circumcision. You have what it looked forward to and pointed to. You have what the Old Testament called the circumcision of the heart. And the figure might not click in our minds naturally, but it describes regeneration. It is, as Paul describes it here, this spiritual circumcision is putting off the body of flesh, death to the old self, buried with him in baptism, and raised in newness of life. And the riches of regeneration are all the more amazing because of who we were. We were not fundamentally good people who just needed a little help. We had done absolutely nothing to commend ourselves to God or to show ourselves worthy of God's affection and love. Rather, this incredible mercy came to you, Paul says, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And if you are here this morning, perhaps as a visitor or new to Christianity, uh, and you think that the church is a club for good moral people to meet and get together, then you haven't understood Christianity. If you think that you are a good person, then the reality is that Jesus really doesn't have anything to offer you. Christianity is for sinners. Repentant sinners, yes, but sinners nonetheless who know themselves to be sinners, who know that apart from Jesus, they have absolutely nothing to offer God but their own guilt and corruption. And so while we come to the table with absolutely nothing, we are greeted by a gracious, merciful God who delights in giving us everything. We who were dead in the trespasses in which we once walked. God has made us alive together with Christ. God brings new life only in union with his Son. Apart from Jesus, there is no new life. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no anything. But in him and with him, we are not only made alive, but we are forgiven all of our trespasses. And the real wonder of God's 
forgiveness is that it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. God does not merely will sinners to be forgiven and it happens. God has to make provision for the mercy that he shows to sinners. Yes, he has to. God cannot pardon sinners at his will. You might say, whoa, are are you limiting God? I thought God can do all things. Well, actually not really. There's quite a few things that God cannot do. Scripture says that God cannot lie. And among the things that God cannot do is violate his own just character. God must act justly because that is who he is. So he cannot look at the guilty and say, I'll just pretend you're innocent. God cannot look at me in the filth of my sin and say, I'll just pretend you're clean. So the question then is, how does God do this? How does God forgive all of our trespasses while still acting as a just judge who refuses to sweep sin under the rug? And that question is answered in verse 14. He forgives all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God does not ignore our sin when he forgives us. He addresses it. He satisfies the legal demands of our sin by nailing them to the cross. And so, get the picture here. Paul is, I think, imagining a courtroom setting. And there before the righteous judge is a laundry list of all the indictments that stand against us. And those indictments rightly call for our judgment, our condemnation, and our death. And we can imagine Satan as our accuser bringing the record before God and saying, look at this man. He's scum. He's taken your name in vain. He has watched pornography. He has objectified women. He has complained against your wisdom. He has doubted your goodness. He has made idols of money and the opinion of others. Even today, he rebels against you daily. This man is guilty and corrupt. And if you are half of the just God that you claim to be, then you must punish this man. You must condemn this man. And Satan would stand on good grounds and making those accusations. That's what he does. He's the accuser. And I imagine God holding up his copy and says, my records show that all the charges of blasphemy have been blotted out. Satan so said, well, okay, but what about the pornography? Blotted out. Well, what about taking your name in vain? Blotted out. What about the idolatry? Blotted out. Drunkenness? Blotted out. All of it. Every record of sin has been blotted out. There is not a single charge that remains. Every debt has been paid in full. This he set aside. How? Nailing it to the cross. We can be pardoned because Christ was condemned. The demands that stood against us can be set aside because Christ took them up and he bore them to the cross and he satisfied their demands so that we, his people, would not have to. It is by means of the death 
of Jesus on the cross and only by means of the death of Jesus that the justice of God can be satisfied for sinners and we can be forgiven. And it's by means of the cross that, verse 15, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a reference to Satan and all the spiritual forces of darkness. And he says he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And there's what I regard, at least, a curious statement in Hebrews 2.14. I'll just read it to you. Speaking of Christ, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I find it curious because, as I understand Scripture, there's no real sense in which Satan has the power of death. He has no ultimate authority to kill or to make alive. But what Satan does have against every sinner is legitimate grounds to accuse us and to call for our death and condemnation before a just judge. But at the cross, when Christ canceled the record of death, he disarmed Satan. He stripped him of the greatest weapon, and I think the only weapon that he can bring against us, namely our own guilt. And Satan, the accuser, now has nothing that he can wield against us. And now we take a step back and we look at all of verses 9 to 15 together and observe that this is just a brief summary of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for the believer. He is the God-man. He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, the one and only mediator between God and man, in all ways like us, and yet, in another sense, in all ways distinct from us, holy, pure, perfect, and undefiled. He is the one who fills us with his spirit. He is the one who changes our hearts and gives us new, abundant, and everlasting life. He is the one who forgives all of our trespasses and sins. He is the one who cancels the record of debt that stands against us and calls for our condemnation. He is the one who triumphs over the enemy of our soul. He is the one who has done all of this and so much more, and he offers himself to us in the gospel. And would you seek your fullness in something else besides him? Would you make him a stepping stone to some other experience or encounter or philosophy or idea. If the fullness of life, of joy, is not found in Christ, then it is not to be found anywhere. This is the cumulative force of verses 9 to 15. This is how Paul is undergirding and upholding those imperatives in verse 8 and then 16 and 18. And this is why Jesus is the plumb line by which every idea, every philosophy, every spiritual methodology is to be judged. Because Jesus is the fullness of all spirituality and all religion. That's the point. And so in the remaining verses, Paul now is going to draw his own applications from the truth that he's just been expositing. So one in verse 16 and then another in 18. So now let's look at how just Paul himself is drawing out these applications. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you. And then verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And these follow along with the other imperative, like we've noted. See to it that no one takes you captive. And the summary of all of them is be free. Guard your freedom. Let no one steal the freedom that Christ died to purchase. And after highlighting in verse 16, how Jesus disarmed Satan and triumphed over him, or I think, sorry, 15, uh, he concludes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And by saying, let no one pass judgment on you, I think Paul means to say, no, let no one undermine the assurance of your salvation. Let no one take captive the, the clearness and the freedom of your conscience that as you worship God by placing a burden upon you that God himself hasn't put on you. And it's apparent that Paul has these Judaizers in mind, people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but also added observance to the Mosaic law in addition to faith in Christ as the requirement to have a right relationship with God. So yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he died for sin. Yes, he rose from the dead. But also, observe Sabbath, be circumcised, eat kosher foods, do all these things, and then you can have a right relationship with God. And so it's apparent that this is not a precise issue that we deal with today. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone in this room has struggled with the assurance of their salvation because they weren't eating kosher or because they haven't observed the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, I'd say that we don't even have uh, things in our culture, in our experience, that, that exactly parallel the issue that with the Judaizers that they faced. So instead of trying to give modern-day examples, which approximate the issue, I'm simply going to draw out some principle, a principle that there are inevitably going to be Christian individuals and institutions that add requirements to following Jesus that God has not added. And they will look down on or maybe ostracize you for not conforming to those requirements. And I'm not advocating for outright disdain or total disregard for the opinion of other people. There is an appropriate place for valuing and receiving and submitting to the opinion of other people, especially if they're godly people. But the truths outlined in verse 13 to 15 should give us a bit of holy boldness in Jesus. A Christian should be marked by a certain confidence that flows from our justification, that Satan himself the great accuser has no accusation to bring against you in the courtroom of heaven. The record of debt that stood against you is forever nailed to the cross. The just judge of all the world counts you as righteous. Who cares? Who cares what some sinner thinks about you? If they think that you're the greatest Christian since Paul, it adds nothing to you. And if they think you're the worst scum of the world, it takes nothing away from you. And this is why the more that we're leaning into practically and really, not just in our heads, but 
in our lives, leaning into the truths of justification by faith alone, the more free we will be to confess our sins to one another. The less we'll feel need feel the need to put up a facade that everything is perfect. We have the perfect family. We have the perfect marriage. I have the perfect spiritual life. And everything is just as it should be. Because the truth is, it's not. There's brokenness in my life and in my marriage and my family. And I would guess that there's brokenness in your life too. And if we are honest about our sins and the brokenness in our lives, we can express that if we believe in justification if we believe that Christ has triumphed over the enemy of our soul and that he has nothing to bring against us, that I'm free, I'm justified, I'm declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. So why care what some other sinner thinks about me? God says I'm pardoned. God says I'm righteous. So it's all right if somebody says this or that about me. Especially, especially if it's not even about a real morally binding issue in Scripture. Uh, and, and now I'm really extending the application out here, but, but I would just address young people to, to get this. Get justification by faith alone and learn to value what God says about you more than what people say about you. Because you will be free. You'll be free from so much drama. You'll be free from so much gossip. You'll be free from so much pressure to conform so that you can please and be approved by other people. Because there is an appropriate disregard for the opinions of other people as a Christian. Because we cherish and regard the opinion of God so much more than what other people think or say about us. And we know in our bones what our standing before God is and what Christ has accomplished. And so we, we don't need to worry if people say otherwise because that's not what the, the record shows in the courtroom of heaven. But most directly for us all, don't let your assurance be shaken. Don't let your conscience be bound by what? Man-made traditions extra-biblical impositions that people place upon you that God has not. However, on the other hand, if someone can point to Scripture and say, Sam, you're, you're using the Lord's name in vain. Uh, you're not honoring the Lord with your speech. Then let your conscience be bound, not by that person's opinion, but by the authority of Scripture. In verse 18, Paul continues on the same theme, but seems to be addressing a different threat from the, the more Gnostic group, rather than the, the Judaizing group that were pushing uh, the Mosaic law. But in verse 18, we see the same kind of imperative, but it's angled with Gnosticism. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. And again, what are these people doing? They're adding burdens that God has not added. Yes, believe in Jesus, but also be ascetic. Have rigorous discipline. Perhaps having angelic encounters and receive direct revelation from God. This is what true spirituality is. This is what the fullness will be like if you really get there and experience it. 
And like I said, ascetic just means this, this rig- rigorous form of discipline and self-denial. Things like, you know, fasting three times a week and you're going to sleep directly on the ground because you, you don't want the comfort of a bed. Uh, don't enjoy sexual intimacy in marriage. Don't find any pleasure in any earthly goods. This is what asceticism encourages. And they say that's more spiritual uh, than, you know, enjoying earthly goods. And Paul takes a little jab at them. He says they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. And the irony is that they would have considered themselves hyper, very spiritual, uh, more spiritual than everyone else. But Paul says they are puffed up not by a spiritual mind, but what is in reality a, a sensuous mind, a fleshly mind, a carnal mind. That's the exact thing that they don't want to be. Uh, but notice how Paul identifies the same fundamental problem with both groups. Uh, with the Judaizers in verse 17, it's with their fixation on physical things like food and drink, with the Jewish calendar. And Paul, Paul says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the fundamental problem is that they're not Christ-centered in their approach to spirituality. It fails to recognize that Christ came to fulfill the law, that he fulfilled the institutions, he fulfilled all the celebrations, the priesthood, the kingship. It was all about Jesus. But the Judaizers held on to these things, not realizing that they were only there to point forward to Christ, who was the true reality. And then look at verse 19 with the Gnostics. What's their problem? Yes, they're puffed up, but that's not all. Verse 19 says, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So their fundamental problem and their approach to spirituality is what? That they're not Christ-centered. They're not holding fast to the head. Jesus gets displaced by an insistence on fresh spiritual encounters, by new revelation, by extra-biblical disciplines. And the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus is compromised. They're trying to grow in every way except by holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. See how Paul is just applying the principle that he outlined in verse 8 in relation to the Judaizers and then the Gnostics. So verse 8, let no one take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit that is according to human tradition, according to elementary principles and not according to Christ. So what's the problem with the Judaizers and the Gnostics? Well, among other things, is that most fundamentally, it's not according to Christ. They displace the gospel of Christ from the center of their theology and their practice. That's the problem. And when you do that, what you get is not some greater or fuller experience. What you get is empty deceit. And I need to wrap up. So I I realize that we're not contending with Judaizers and Gnostics today but we will always be bombarded by things, as Paul says in verse 23, that have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And I would just say, be careful of 
philosophies and ideologies and methodologies that might influence you? Are they calling you to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith? Or are they subtly distracting you from Jesus and directing your attention to another object, an object that might have the appearance of wisdom, an object that promises a richer and fuller experience, but ultimately is an object which leads you away from Christ. Let us see to it that no one takes us captive with any philosophy that is not according to Christ. And then let us be confident in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. We don't need to have our consciences bound by the ideas and traditions of other people. The question is, what has God said to me? Let that bind your conscience. Let no one place a burden upon you that Christ has not placed. And then let us gladly seek day in and day out to find our fullness in his fullness, knowing that he is the fountain and the river from, all, from whom all true spirituality, all true joy and delight and satisfaction comes. So let us seek that in him. Let's pray. Uh, Christ, you are the fullness. Uh, there is nothing beyond you. Uh, there is nothing more foundational, more ultimate uh, than you and what you have done for us. Uh, Set before us afresh the glory of the gospel. Uh, Let us see all that you've done for us, that we have been raised with you, that we have uh, been given new life in you, that uh, we've been pardoned in you, and that we have been made triumphant in you, all because of what you have done on the cross, that you've set aside the record of debt that stood against us. It's been nailed to the cross once and forever. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory. We praise these things in your name. Amen.